Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open God's Word to the 132nd Psalm. Psalm 132 is our text today. We're making our way towards the end of our study of the 15 Psalms known collectively as the Psalms of Ascent. These, we believe, were scriptural songs sung by Jewish pilgrims as they journeyed to the holy city of Jerusalem to worship. This particular Psalm, 132, reminds the worshiper of God's covenant faithfulness. In fact, that's the title of the message today, God's Covenant Faithfulness. That is to say, when God makes a promise, He keeps it. Unlike people who tend to make promises they can't keep, God made a number of covenants with individuals recorded in the Scripture. Just two weeks ago, we celebrated the Lord's Supper here. And when we do so, we are celebrating when Jesus ratified and brought into existence the new covenant, the covenant of grace, a covenant that He made to forgive our sins. But there are many other covenants recorded in the Bible. The first goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, sometimes called the Edenic Covenant because of that fact. Most commonly called the Edemic Covenant because it was made between God and Adam and Eve. Of course, they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. They sinned and disobeyed God. There was the Noahic Covenant when God destroyed the earth because of the sin of man. He promised to Noah that he never again would destroy the earth with water. He gave the bow in the sky as a sign of that covenant promise. There's the Abrahamic covenant. God chose this man out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abram, and made certain promises to him. Told him to go to a land that he would show them, that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He would make his name great and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That, of course, was a covenant that God kept. It is keeping. There's the Mosaic covenant God gave to Moses as he used Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage a system whereby they could worship Him and have their sins atoned for through a sacrificial system. And and then there's the covenant we're looking at today in Psalm 132, the Davidic covenant. It's a lesser known covenant, but it's a covenant that God made with David that one of his descendants would rule forever and ever. Let's read about that covenant today in Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, O David's behalf, all his affliction, How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the field of Jair. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let the priest be clothed with righteousness. Let your godly ones sing for joy for the sake of David, your servant. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of the body I will not, I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. 
I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priest also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon him his crown shall shine. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, this psalm begins with the people's prayer. People are singing this as a prayer to God, and they are calling God to do certain things based upon who David is. He says, remember the afflictions of David. This, of course, is King David. He is and was one of the most revered men of Israel's history. He was chosen by God as a boy to replace the wicked King Saul. He was a man after God's own heart, the scripture says. A mighty warrior, a faithful friend, a musician, a poet, a talented man. Women loved him, men admired him. But David was also a man whose life was marked by affliction and at times despair. He had many enemies. Of course, King Saul tried to kill him on many occasions. The Philistines hated David because he slew many of their best warriors. But the most painful afflictions were those enemies in his own household. David's own sons tried to overthrow his crown. He was at various points in his life in exile from Jerusalem and from his homeland. He lived in caves and on the run a good portion of his young life. And he experienced mental and emotional anguish. And he felt at times that God had forgotten him. David was a poet, and poets do some of their best work when they're going through times of angst and anguish. And one of David's most beautiful psalms is Psalm 13, where he pours out his heart to God. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Every honest Christian here today has read that in times of despair and say, that's me. I feel as if God is not hearing my prayers. I feel like my enemies are winning. Of course, like many of us, many of David's afflictions were self-inflicted. Most of his problems in his family sprung from his own consequences of sexual sin. But as we saw last week, David was brokenhearted over his sin. He confessed it. He repented, called out to God, and wrote Psalm 51, where he asked God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. Truthfully, David made a lot of questionable decisions in his life, especially as it related to women. But one thing that is unquestionable about the life of David was his zeal for the Lord. He loved God, loved the glory of God. It seems that his zeal for the Lord's name began when he was just a kid. You remember the story of David's older brothers who went out ostensibly to fight the Philistines on the field of battle and David was left behind to tend his father Jesse's flock. Jesse wanted to know about how his sons were doing so he sent Je uh, David with some food and cheese and some treats to go out and inquire of his brothers how the battle was going and of course when David showed up he didn't find any fighting going on. He found his brothers along with the rest of the armies of Israel cowering in their tents because those were the days of Goliath, this great giant of the Philistines who would come out and taunt the armies of the Lord every day. Tell them to come out and fight him. Then he would curse their God and blaspheme. And David heard it and says, why are you in your tents? Who is this uncircumcised Philistines? And his brother told him to be quiet, you're just a boy. David says that uh, 
when the bear and the lion came to take the sheep, God spared me from them. He'll do so for this Philistine. And he went out and slew him. That story is well told. But he did it not for bravado's sake, but for zeal for the Lord's good name. And later on in his life when he became king, and he defeated many of the enemies of God, there was a period of peace in the land. And David's wealth and fame increased, and he built a very nice home for himself. And as he was laying one day in bed in that beautiful home, it struck him like a bolt of lightning that while he lived in luxury, God didn't have a house to call his own. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read these words. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Now that was a very literal statement. Remember that when God gave the Mosaic covenant, he prescribed how he was to be worshipped. He told Moses to build this ark, this wooden box, and overlay it with gold and create statues of angels on top of it facing each other called the mercy seat. And he says, there at the mercy seat, I'll meet with you. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in that place and do that. He prescribed that tabernacle, which was really an elaborate tent, a portable worship facility that they carried with them wherever they went. But they were still worshiping that way in the time of David. There was not a temple yet. And it just struck David someday that, that God needs a house at least as nice as, as mine. Sometimes... Uh, my wife and I make the mistake on a bored Saturday afternoon like we had yesterday to, to take the kids out and go look at open houses in the neighborhood. And it's kind of like the mistake of going to the dealership and driving a new car. When you get back in yours, it looks so dirty and old. You come back home and your house is not perfect like that open house and, and you began to wish you had a different one. Well, David's not wishing for a better house for himself. He, he says, I have a house of cedar. I've told you before that most of the homes in the ancient world were not made out of wood. Lumber was hard to come by. They were made out of mud bricks. But David had a wooden house. It was not only wood, it was made out of cedar, which was the finest building material, imported from Lebanon, exceedingly expensive. And he just struck him. How can I live in luxury when the Lord doesn't have a, a permanent home? And so what does he do? He makes a vow. Verse 2. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now that, that seems like a noble gesture, doesn't it? He's going to build God a house. He says, God, here's what I'm going to do for you. Now be very careful of that, telling God what you're going to, to do for him. Now, to the Israelites who lived before the construction of the temple, as David lived, God's presence to them was symbolized, as I said, in that box, that Ark of the Covenant. After Moses led them out of Egyptian bondage, God gave Moses instructions for it, very meticulous. But when Moses died, Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But before the people went the priests who carried with them on poles that God had prescribed the Ark of the Covenant. It was the symbol and a sign to those people of God's power and protection over their nation. 
It was ultimately lost. Believe, can you imagine the national symbol of God's power and protection lost? But it was lost for a time through their disobedience. During the days of Samuel, it was returned by their enemies because it brought curses upon their households. It lacked a permanent home, and thus was David's vow. He was going to build for the Ark of the Covenant a permanent home. Now, David could be impetuous, and he seems to have forgotten in his zeal that the Ark was to be transported very meticulously, and he decided to send a cart out, pulled by oxen, and it was going to place the ark on that and bring it back to Jerusalem. And of course, you know the story. The oxen stumbled, and the ark was about to slip off the cart, and a poor guy named Uzzah reaches up to stop the ark from falling, and he touched it, which was strictly prohibited by God. And what happened to Uzzah? He died on the spot. David was not humbled by that. He was angered by it. He got mad at God that he would let this good guy Uzzah die. And so this man by the name of Obed, Edom, takes the ark into his tent and God just blessed Obed, Edom up a storm. He blessed him so much that David became jealous. He says, maybe I will bring it into Jerusalem after all. But the second time David was humbled and he went back and he read how God said the ark was to be transported. And he did it this time God's way. And he brought the ark into Jerusalem. David said, God, I'm going to do something for you. Many of you and probably I in time to time, it says, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. Do you know what the New Testament says? Let your yea be your yea and your nay your nay. Don't make elaborate vows to God because in our humanity, most times we're not able to keep them. Even a man as zealous for God's glory as David could not keep his vow. David says, I'm going to build you a temple, God. Did David build God a temple? No, God told him he couldn't because he was a bloody man. He'd shed too much blood. God did graciously allow David's son Solomon to build the temple. But this time, David didn't get angry at God. He didn't pout. In fact, David procured all the necessary materials for Solomon to be successful in building the temple. But after David died, the temple was dedicated. It's an interesting note that at the dedication ceremony, Solomon reminded the people that their God was too great to be confined to a house made by human hands. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? David knew that intellectually. He wrote in his psalm that uh, if I make my bed in hell, thou art there, God. He knew that God couldn't be contained to a box or a building. He just wanted to say, Lord, I love you. And he was doing something he thought uh, was gracious for the Lord. But, but I want to remind us all of something this morning. That, that the first half of this psalm, the first ten verses, are about David. People are saying, David, remember David's affliction. Remember the vows that he made for you. But I'm grateful that the Bible is not David's story, aren't you? It's God's story. Now, there's some great men and women that we can learn from in the Bible, but the Bible is ultimately God's story. So when I title my sermons, I try never to have the title about any person. I want to remind us that this is about God. So the title of the sermon today is 
God's covenant faithfulness, not David's covenant faithfulness. David couldn't keep his promises either in marriage or to God. But God always keeps his promises. All the promises of God are, are yes and find their amen in Jesus. So the rest of the psalm, verse 11 to the end, are about God's response to David saying, God, I'm going to do something for you. This is what he said, verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David. He says, oh, David, you want to make a vow? Here's a vow. A truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them. Their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priest also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon himself his crown shall sign. This is God's story. Men make promises and covenants, and we ought to keep them. When a man and woman stand before God and promise to be faithful till death parts them, that's a covenant promise that God intends them to make. One of the reasons that we have a church family is to hold one another accountable to those covenant promises we make. And I'm grateful for so many of you who have marriages like uh, the Nelsons who celebrate 50 years this week. Praise the Lord. May the Lord add to their tribe. But the truth is we're not God. He never, never breaks a promise. And here he makes certain promises to do for David. Number one, he says, David, your sons are going to rule after you. We always worry about how our children and grandchildren are going to turn out. And David had reason to, looking at some of his children. But God gave him a son, Solomon. And he said, Solomon's going to rule after you. And you know that even after Solomon, Solomon's sons Rehoboam came on the throne. Now Rehoboam was a terrible king. And it was during his reign that the kingdom split into northern and southern kingdoms. But even after that, for many more years, David's grandchildren reigned upon his throne. That is, David had a dynasty. Saul didn't have a dynasty. He was a one and done king. But David's family had a dynasty. And God promised it would be so, and it was. God made another promise to David. He says, I'm going to allow you to worship me in this temple you have in your mind. In Zion, I'm going to meet with the people. Now, there's a wonderful word I like to use about God's relationship to sinful humanity in that he condescends to us. We don't go up to God, do we? He comes down to us. Jesus did that in his incarnation. He emptied himself, Philippians 2 said, and took on human flesh. He condescended. He allows us, in other words, in our frail humanity to somehow interact with Him. He condescends to us. He does that every day. He allows us to use words in our vocabulary because they're the only words we have to describe Him. Because we don't have the words to describe Him as He deserves. But He allows that. He condescends to us. And he says, I'm going to allow you, verse 13, the Lord has chosen Zion, desired it for his habitation as a resting place forever. Here I will dwell. That's not to say he doesn't dwell in other places. It's not saying he's confined to Zion. But in the old covenant, he says, I will meet with you there. I will allow the priest 
to make those sacrifices on your behalf. And then he makes a third and a greater promise, and that is that there will be an eternal kingdom to come forth from David's line. Look at verse 17. He says, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. Now in the Old Testament, a horn was a symbol of authority and power and usually of a kingdom. What does he mean that I will cause the horn of David to spring forth? Well, as we look at other scriptures, this root of Jesse certainly is, is messianic prophecy. He's saying, as we look back in hindsight, though we don't know how much David understood that it's from David's lineage that the Messiah would come, the Savior of Israel. Look what he says in verse 12. Here's a different kind of kingdom. He says, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I teach them, their sons shall sit upon your throne. How long? Forever. Verse 17, he says, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp to my anointed he speaks of an eternal kingdom. And if there's anything we know about earthly kingdoms, they don't last. They come and go. Kings rule for a while, they die, someone takes their place. Dynasties extend for a few generations at the most, and they're replaced by others. But this kingdom, he says, is forever. It's eternal. And undoubtedly, he's speaking here of Christ, the Messiah. He is speaking of Jesus who would be of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. We know that when Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, went to be taxed by the Romans, they went back to their ancestral hometown, the little village of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Bethlehem's also where David grew up. In fact, he was the favorite son, and in the day of Jesus, it was not known so much as Bethlehem as the city of David. And so, in a very real sense, Jesus came from that line of, of David, a horn of David. That's why the New Testament, incidentally, provides two separate genealogies of Jesus' family. If you read the New Testament, one of those little Gideon New Testaments, the first thing you run into is a genealogy. Because Matthew, who wrote that gospel, was keen to let you know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfilled promise of Psalms 132 in the Davidic covenant traces that all the way to David. And this is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus was the promised one who would rule forever. Now, David is so revered and was so revered in Jesus' day that it was at your own peril that you said anything negative about David publicly. Peter came very close to that in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Remember, he's talking about the messianic prophecies of the Psalms. And he says, brothers, we know where David's tomb is. We, we can go down there now and look in David's sarcophagus and guess what we're going to find? King David, or what's left of him. But he says, Jesus' tomb is empty, amen? Jesus is greater than David. Jesus was the one who said, the Lord has said to my Lord, Sit down at my right hand. I will put your enemies under my foot. I wasn't talking about David. David lived and died. He had many great victories, but he's not the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is. And so this covenant spoke of the promised one to come. Look again at verse 5. He says, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your, uh, verse 9 rather, your godly ones sing for joy. This is the prayer of the people. 
Remember, the, the priest had to wear these sacerdotal robes that called them to stand out as distinct and different and representatives of the people. And those priests better do things the right way, hadn't they? Not only would they be struck dead, but God wouldn't accept the sacrifices of the people. So it was very important that God saw the priest as covered in righteousness, not only in their garments, but, but in their heart. But here's the thing about God's promises. Remember I said man often falls short of fulfilling our vows. God never does. Not only does he fulfill those vows completely, he goes above and beyond, doesn't he? Do you know what the New Testament says when we pray to God? Here's who we pray to. Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or even think about asking. That's the God we serve. And what the, the Apostle Paul is doing there, he's adding upon adding upon adding these superlatives. It would be one thing if he said, God is able to do all we could ask. Would you agree with that? That'd be a true statement. He doesn't stop there. He's able to do above all we could ever ask. He's able to do exceedingly above all we could ever ask. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above not only all we could ever ask, whatever we could ever think about asking. And so the priests were not only clothed with a temporary righteousness through the correct sacrifices, he says here that the priest of God eternally will be clothed with salvation. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, dear friends. Now, we don't have to keep coming back to re-up year after year on the Day of Atonement anymore because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sins. And as wonderful as that temple that Solomon built was, and as necessary as it was in the Old Covenant day, we don't need a temple anymore. That's why there's not one. And we don't have to have priests to intercede on our behalf. We have direct access to the Father and an open invitation because we are in Christ. And because God the Father accepts the sacrifice of His dear Son, He accepts all of those who are forgiven in him, we call those people the redeemed. And the scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? That means to praise his name forever. This is what he says is going to happen. The redeemed will sing for joy forever. Now, David was well-intentioned. I admired David a lot. He burned for zeal for the Lord's glory. May his tribe increase. We need more people who are zealous for the good name of God. Would you agree? But it is possible to be zealous without knowledge. Paul said of his own contemporaries in the Jewish faith that they were zealous, but it was without knowledge. They, they, they weren't zealous about the right things. There are terrorists all over the world who are willing to give their life for a cause, but it's the wrong cause. We must be zealous about the right things and about the right God, the God of the Bible, a God of mercy and, and grace and, and justice. And he says when we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, we're going to praise his name forever. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven, incidentally. Heaven is not going to be where you indulge every earthly appetite without consequence. Heaven is where the redeemed of the Lord are going to praise His name and in His presence forever. David was well-intentioned. He burned with zeal for God, but David was a man like us. 
unable to complete all the vows that he made. His mouth wrote checks his life didn't cash. But God was gracious in all that. But the point of Psalm 132 is not to say, look how close David came to fulfilling his covenants. The point of Psalm 132 being the Bible is not to point to David as someone who had good intentions. The point of 132 Psalms is to say, here's David, the greatest Jewish man that ever lived, and here's God, and David fell woefully short, and so do you. God is not like us. All the promises of God are yes and amen. They are true and trustworthy. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Temples are built, temples collapse. God's word and his Messiah rule forever. And God has made certain promises to you and me. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised in Romans chapter 10 that uh, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's promised that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. He has promised that all those who trust in Christ will never be disappointed. Friend, do you believe the promises of God? The scripture says, He that has begun a good work in you will complete it. He's not going to take back His promises. He's not going to get halfway there and say, well... It's not working out. I didn't really think about all of the things that might happen. God knows the end from the beginning. He says it will happen. It will happen. One of the things God has promised also is he's going to judge sin one day. That's another one of his promises. And that's not a promise that any of us uh, look forward to, is it? I hope you don't. But God has already judged sin at the cross If you'll put your faith and trust in Christ, you no longer have to fear the day when you stand before the Lord and the books of the deeds of your life are open. Jesus has already paid that price for you. One of the greatest promises I know of in the Bible is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I quote it here all the time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has promised that he's never going to bring those sins up against you again. What about you, dear friend? Do you have that confidence and assurance that your sins are forgiven? That when you stand before the Lord one day, when you die, or when He calls you home, that He's not going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. He's going to say, welcome home, child of mine. You can have that assurance today. It's not through what you can do. It's not through self-reformation. It's not through self-rehabilitation. It's through simple, childlike faith and what Christ has done on the cross. Let's pray and thank him for that glorious promise. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I'm reminded every time I stand here to preach, every time I read a psalm, that this is not David's story. It's not Solomon's story. It's not Peter or Paul's story. It is the story of an eternal God whose eternal plan of redemption is unfolding precisely as you want it to. And Father, to that story, you have added the church and everyone in it. Lord, we are grateful that your promises today are just as trustworthy as the promises you made to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to David. All your promises are true and trustworthy. Lord, you have promised that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, you'll forgive us.
You'll save us. You'll give us a home in heaven. Lord, that's what hundreds of people in this room are depending on for their eternity. So, Father, I pray if there's even one person here this morning who does not know you in the free part of sin, maybe they're depending upon self-effort or their genealogy or their good name to get them in. Father, I pray you'd help them despair of that. I pray, Father, they would run to Jesus. They would confess their sins. They would uh, be granted faith and repentance and salvation here today. Father, I pray you'd give them the boldness to make that decision public among these people today. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.